Good morning, and welcome to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN, where our goal every Sunday is to entertain, enlighten, and expose you to information that can lead to positive change in your life. I'm Larry Hardesty. This morning, we're talking women's basketball. We're joined by Jennifer Rosati, president of the Connecticut Sun of the WNBA, former collegiate head coach. She won a championship at UConn, and she was one of the assistant coaches on the Tokyo Gold Medal Women's National Basketball Team that won the gold. So please have a pencil, pen, a piece of paper handy, because we've got some information you may need and may want to share with your friends. And as always, we thank you for making us a part of your day while preparing for an early run or perhaps a sunrise service. We'll talk women's hoops next on New York Sports and Beyond after this timeout. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond on 9870 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty, a member of seven previous USA coaching staffs in basketball and the 2011 USA Basketball National Coach of the Year. Jennifer Rosati was named an assistant coach for the 20 USA Basketball Women's National Team through the Tokyo Olympic Games. And on April 21st of 2021, it was announced that she would pull double duty as an assistant and USA America team coach. Plus, she was named the WNBA Connecticut Sun president on April 2021. This has been a very big year for Jennifer Rosati. She's a former All-American and NCAA Regional Most Outstanding Player as a junior and senior at UConn and swept postseason awards as the Biggest Player of the Year, Biggest Scholar Athlete of the Year, the Associate Press Player of the Year, and the Collegiate Women's Athlete of the Year and the Wade Trophy winner in 1996. Let's welcome to the show the pride of White Plains, New York, Jennifer Rosati to New York Sports and Beyond. Hey, Jennifer, how are you this morning? I'm doing great. I don't know that I've ever been called the pride of White Plains before, but I'll take it since I was born there. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, listen, there's so many other things that we're going to talk about that you've accomplished over your great career. The least I could do is start out with your hometown. So let's start with <laughs> how, how did you decide that basketball was the thing for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I played every sport when I grew up. You know, my dad and mom signed me up for soccer and baseball, and I had a brother that was 11 months older than me, so we usually just kind of played on the same team. My dad coached us, and probably wasn't until about fifth or sixth grade that I started to play basketball, and by seventh grade, I just decided that it was a sport that was the most fast-paced and exciting and that I could really use my competitiveness and intensity the most. And so I fell in love with it. How did you, what did you do? What was the, the steps for folks who are just learning how to play the game or want to be, you know, attain the highest heights of 10 college, be a pro? What, what was it about basketball? What was it about your skills and learning the game, learning to shoot, all the practices, all the dribbling expert, all the things that got you to be, uh, you know, a success? Well, I think, you know, obviously it took a lot of hard work. I mean, I, I I would be remiss if I didn't say that I was blessed with a level of athleticism and skills, you know, to begin with. And I grew up with an older brother and played with boys as I, you know, was younger. And so I, I kind of had to toughen up and, you know, fi uh, fine tune my skills and really hone in on what I needed to be good at because I was also smaller, you know, as a five five female I always thought I would be taller when I hit five five in eighth grade I said oh great I'm gonna be five eight five nine and I never grew another inch and so I had to use those intangible qualities to, to gain an advantage and for me that meant competitiveness it meant work ethic it meant intelligence um, and then just making sure that, that nobody was putting in more hours than I was and so having a supportive family was certainly helpful and an environment where I was able to thrive um, and then I just went to a lot of camps. You know, I, I, mm. I remember 
I actually lived in Tokyo when I was in middle school. I would come back in the summer times and my parents would let me go to basketball camps at West Point. Uh, and then when I moved back here in 10th grade, I started playing AAU. So it was just making it a year round commitment and, and falling in love with, with wanting to be great at it. And I think in, in high school is when I started to, to realize the, the dream of being able to play in college. So now let's go back to high school, Jen, and the thought process of, wow, could I actually be going to UConn? And this is not <laughs> UConn as we know now, right? This is UConn, yeah. early UConn. <laughs> yes, it was. It was early UConn back in the days when UConn and Providence were both battling it out for, you know, the Big East Championship every year. Um, and, so, and they, you know, I went to both camps, so I got to know players from both teams and, uh, I had, you know, teammates from throughout the state that were looking at both schools. And so, um, yeah, it wasn't, I remember having to scour the newspapers to find scores, you know, from UConn games. It wasn't as easily accessible. It wasn't maybe little girl's dream to play at Connecticut at the time. Um, but, you know, when I went and visited the school and had a chance to spend time with Gino and his staff and the players on the team, um, I could see they were going places. And I knew it felt like the right fit for me. Um, because it was close enough to home, you know, but being from the, you know, Danbury area, it was still far enough away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, it, and it had everything, academics, athletics, and it was going places. They had just built Gamble Pavilion. I could tell it was a program on the rise, and I wanted to be a part of the, of the first. And, uh, you know, I, UConn's special now. It's, you know, obviously we've had decades and decades of success, but it's nice to be able to say that we were a part of the first championship. And let's talk about that. Did you, as you got to UConn and you're playing there and, and you get that championship, what is it about that team that you had the sense of, you know what, we're really good <laughs> and we can really, <laughs> we can really win a championship here. Yeah. You know, probably, I don't know that we realized that until, you know, maybe my sophomore year, um, you know, Rebecca was a junior and then Carol Walters and Carl Ruby had come in behind me. So they were freshmen and, we went down and played um, North Carolina in the Elite Eight at Rutgers, and I'll never forget that game. You know, they were obviously a huge favorite, and we lost, but it was close. It was like a single-digit game, and it was like the first time I think we were like, wow, we're actually able to compete with the very best in the country. And so when we came back the following year, we added Nikesha Sales to the mix, Um you know, we had everybody back. We had the experience. We had the hunger. And about midway through my junior year, when we beat Tennessee for the first time on our home floor, that was when we were like, wow, this team is special and we could actually go undefeated. So that was on, on Martin Luther King Day of 1995, and we never looked back. That's great. Uh, what was it like for you and your parents when your face is on the cover of SI? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? It was it was pretty unbelievable. Um, I remember I was sitting in my my dorm room with Rebecca at the time, and I can't remember exactly how the news got broken to us. But she turned to me and she's like, "Oh my God, you're going to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated." And you know, Rebecca was obviously the face of our program. She was our All American. She did all the media. She was our leading scorer. Um, so typically we just always assume that it was going to be her, right? And, and deservedly so. And so when they, I remember when she told me that it was going to be me, I, I, it was like 
joy, you know, and I, I remember at the time, no cell phones, so I had to call my parents from my dorm phone and let them know, and I think everybody that I know in my family snatched up as many Sports Illustrated copies as they could, so, and I still get them. I get them in the mail now and, and with requests for autographs, so there's still a lot of them out there and a lot of them that people have saved over the years, and it never gets old to open up, a you know, an envelope and, and see the, the cover and and think back to what we were, we accomplished as a team that year. Jennifer, it's a point guard. It's a point guard sport in college. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Rebecca had no chance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My guest is Jennifer Rosati. She's president of the Connecticut Sun of the WNBA. We'll talk about that. Former collegiate head coach, assistant coach of the Tokyo Gold Medal Women's National Team. She's done a lot of stuff. We're gonna get to all of it. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. We are 98.7 ESPN New York. Thanks for stopping by New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Let's continue my conversation with NCAA champion, member of the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Gold Medal coaching staff, and president of the WNBA Connecticut Sun, Jennifer Rosati. All right, Jennifer, you've, you've graduated college now. You, what, what is your thought process as to, you know, the next role? Where do you go? Do you, do you, do you go WNBA? Do you want to go coaching? Where, where, take us through that decision yeah. process. Yeah, you know, honestly, I, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. It's, you know, May of 1996. I'm about to graduate and um, thinking about maybe going to grad school. You know, do I want to go play overseas? You know, what's the next step for me? Because back then, nobody really thought about playing professionally. And no, and a lot of players didn't think about getting into coaching the way that they do now. Um, and then literally in, the, in that time frame, you know, the ABL started. So the American Basketball League started first. And they were have they had a team in Hartford. They asked if I would want to be play in the league because the WNBA wasn't starting until the following summer of 1997. Um, and they drafted me to be part of their team. So I started playing professionally that September, like three months after I graduated college. You're, boom! There's a professional league. I got to play in my home state of uh, Connecticut, and uh, we we averaged you know eight to ten thousand fans a game. It was really a successful franchise. Um, we got paid really well, probably too well, because the league folded two and a half years later, mm-hmm. and that's when I started my journey in the WNBA. And during that first summer, towards the end of it, was when the University of Hartford called me. So I was actually still playing. I was still fulfilling my professional career as a WNBA player. And uh, Pat Miser, the athletic director at Hartford, called and asked if I'd be interested in the, the, the women's head coach job. And at first I said, no, (laughs) I said, I got too much going on. But then the more I thought about it and the unique opportunity that I had, um, I decided to give it a shot for one year and I I fell in love with coaching. And so wasn't quite ready to give up my pro playing career. So four years later, I finally retired, but I coached and played for, you know, consecutively for five seasons. Um, and, you know, gave me really good perspective and really allowed me to build my philosophy as a, as a young head coach. Um, but I was able to pursue two really kind of dream jobs at the same time until it was ready for me to start a family. And I, so I retired from playing at 30 years old and continued, obviously, coaching for another, you know, 16 years. Hold on about coaching. Let's go back to WNBA. At that time, did you ever believe that it would still be going on at this time, that it would have that longevity and, you know, par- partially with the NBA backing to begin, but more and more on, on its own, to stand on its own merits? Yeah. You know, I don't know that we ever thought this far in advance. And part of the reason is because I was, I was 
playing for two franchises that folded. So mm. um, I had the opportunity to play for the Houston Comets, you know, and they we won the first uh, four WNBA championships. Mm-hmm. I was part of the, the championships in, in uh, 99 and 2000. Uh, I got traded and ended up playing three more seasons with the um, Cleveland Rockers. Um, and then, you know, in 2003, um, both of those franchises had folded. So wow. others were popping up, but I think at the time it was really hard to imagine that we would have the staying power, you know, because there didn't seem to be a lot of people that wanted to continue to invest, knowing that you would probably lose money in the first few years that you had a team. Um, so I, I think it's pretty unbelievable, um, not not just that the WNBA is still going, but how strong the league is mm-hmm. right now what the players were able to accomplish with their last CBA and, and the investment that the NBA has continued to put into the WNBA. And I appreciate Adam Silver's um, commitment to that, but also what Kathy Engelbert has done as our, our new CEO and president, just um, in terms of, you know, garnering uh, opportunities for us to be on television more and partnering with, um, you know, corporations and, and really, I, I think elevating um, the platform that we have as players and leaders in this league um, and, and elevating the voices of, of the players in this league. So uh, it's, in, it's in the best place it's ever been, and I'm just really excited that I have a chance to be a part of it now. i got to tell you this, Jennifer, um, having covered and becoming a, a real fan of the Liberty with Teresa Rutherspoon and, yep. and, and that yep. crew, you and Cynthia Cooper broke our hearts. I hope you're happy about that. Yes. <laughs> hey, I know we broke your hearts, and yes, I'm happy about it. That's where that competitiveness comes in. <laughs> so I'm not sorry. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about coaching. How, From a coaching standpoint, this, it's a different world, right, Jennifer? It's recruiting. It's going out. It's, it's, you kind of lived it as a player, but now you're coaching. Take us through that transformation. And the other part, which I'm very fascinated to find out from you, is you knew what it took to win. How do you place that into your team? Because there's minutes in the game where when you know what to do and you have that experience of winning, you know what to do. So there's kind of some yeah. frustration on the sideline because, no, that's not what you do in this time. No. Yes, but they don't exactly, know. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I love coaching from the moment I started it. And I think I realized at a young age that, um, the experiences that I had at UConn, you know, which I always credited to my coaching staff and my teammates, um, being in a coaching position allowed me to give that experience to so many other young women, right? And so, you know, I think about the impact my career had on my life and the choices that I made in my life because of my decision to go to UConn. And I wanted to be the person that was able to say that I did the same thing for generations of women. Um, and so I loved it. I loved it for that. And I learned. I learned a lot about how to do the job well, what kind of players I needed to recruit, and how hard I could push them, and um, you know how to teach them to overcome adversity, so that we, when we were in those close moments, you know they trusted each other and they trusted me. And I was really be able to to build a special program at Hartford because the type of players that wanted to come there just had a grit and a competitiveness that really matched um, my my spirit and my competitive spirit and. I loved every minute of it, and we were able to go to the NSA tournament six times and almost go to the Sweet 16 twice, and I was just really able to impact these, the lives of these women in a way that was so much more than, than just basketball, and that became really special to both myself and my husband, who coached alongside of me. So, mm-hmm. you know, GW, the experience was a little bit different, 
different type of kid that was maybe a little more concerned about their academic future. So I didn't have as much basketball success, but we did, you know, we did go to an NCAA tournament in 2018. And so I was able to experience, you know, another cutting down of the net. But um, again, just being able to impact the women that I recruited and I was had the opportunity to coach. And when so many of them reached out to me in the last week, you know, congratulate me on the Olympics. it, It makes you know that you were successful as a coach, that it was not just about the wins and losses, but it was about the impact that you had on these women. And so, yeah, it it just came down to teaching them to trust me and trust each other and, um, you know, have a competitiveness and a work ethic that, that would always win in the end. Jennifer, what's the challenges of coaching alongside your husband? Um, you know, what? there was a lot more benefits than there were challenges. We Mm -hmm. definitely butted heads at times and we probably talked to each other in a way that spouses talk to each other (laughs) more so than colleagues. Uh-huh. Um, but we ag- we agreed, you know, fundamentally on on most of the things okay. that we did, and we loved, you know, sharing the, these moments of success and, and and going to our former players' weddings and mm. watching them raise their children and and having that special bond that we did it together. So uh, it was it was very, uh, you know, fruitful. So as a former player and former collegiate coach, you probably were horrified at some of the video we saw last season with the weight rooms and the different weight rooms yeah. for women and the weight rooms for the guys. And, and it's something that I would think is as much of a frustration because that's what Title IX was supposed to deal with many, many yeah. years ago, and we're still having these issues. And it's really, it's really a shame. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because so many women's coaches were not, we were not surprised. We were not shocked because this is something that we've been experiencing for decades, right? So it, it, we were happy that, that video on the weight room got the exposure that it did because it essentially just exposed the NCAs for all the decades long of inequities um, in terms of how they treat women's basketball, how they promote women's basketball, the resources and staffing and money that they put into women's basketball, and even the messaging surrounding how we lose money to the NCAA without really divulging what our value is. And so uh, it was frustrating you know, to, to, to see it, but at the same time, it was actually for us a stepping stone to be able to say, Hey, you know, now everybody in the country is seeing this. Now men's basketball coaches and players are commenting on this. This is the time to capitalize. And, and, and that's when, you know, the, we, we forced the NCAA to, to, you know, hire a firm to study the inequities and put forth a report to, you know, make some recommendations for changes in the future. And so, I'm excited, even though I'm not part of the NCAA women's basketball family anymore. I'm excited as a women's basketball leader um, that that these inequities got exposed, and there seems to be steps that are going to have have to be taken in order to close the gap, um, you know, between what they're spending on the men and what they're spending on the women. And is this also, I hope, going to with the new changes as far as likeness? Uh, that that yeah. athletes are able to to at least get some money on. Uh, I hope this yeah. will be equally viewed across women's sports as well. Well, you know, they they did a study at the end of the last basketball season, and they actually said that of the top ten social media influencers, eight of them were women in the NCAA. So some mm-hmm. of them were basketball players or gymnasts. So there's a lot more women that have an ability to be marketable at a college level than there are men. Um, and so, for, you know, maybe I didn't always necessarily understand why college players needed to get paid when, you know, we got our scholarships, we got 
food paid for and our housing and we traveled all over the world. Um, but when I think about growth opportunities, when I think about marketing opportunities for our sport, um, it, it comes down to that. It's not necessarily about how much money these women can make. It's about the opportunity for them to promote women's basketball um, across different platforms. And women's basketball fans consume this sport in a much different way than football and basketball fans. So I'm kind of excited to see the opportunities for, you know, some of these women in college, but more importantly, what, what it can do to enhance the image of our sport um, and, and continue to, to grow the marketing opportunities for our individual athletes, but also our teams. Jennifer Rizad, he's my guest. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Coming up, information on Change Can't Wait Night at the WNBA Connecticut Suns game. This is New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. Let's conclude my discussion with Jennifer Rosati. All right, Jennifer, let's go to Tokyo. Let's go back to Tokyo as far as you're <laughs> concerned, right? Let's go to Tokyo. Yes. Just, just take us through, because this was not your first assistant coach on a gold medal team, but let's talk about this one here in Tokyo, and let's talk about trying to build this team, right? And, and what's the focus? What's the game plan as you're putting – the talents, the unique talents of these ladies together. Yeah. You know, I, you know, honestly, you know, don't get me wrong. I have my comments about it, but I do want to make sure I preface with this, with saying that I don't pick the team. The coaches mm-hmm. don't, none of the coaches pick the team. So there's a committee that does that. However, being involved at USA basketball as a coach, but also as a selection committee member for younger teams, um, it, it's a big puzzle, you know, like we have so many really, really talented players women's basketball players in the United States at every level. So whether I'm helping pick a U19 team or a a college Pan Am Games team, or I'm on the coaching staff waiting to see what the committee does for the Olympic team, you know there's going to be discrepancies in what people think should happen. Mm. Um, And what it comes down to is you got to have experience. you got to have people who have been there and done that, which is why players like Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi and Sylvia Fowles need to be on the team. Mm-hmm. because they know what it takes to win an Olympic gold medal. You need to have, you know, players for the future that learn and get experience so that, you know, three years from now at the next Olympics, we've got, you know, players who have been there and done that. And then you just need to have good chemistry. You need to have the right positions. And so, you know, I know there was a lot of conversations about players that got left off, um, but I feel really good about who the, the committee put on this team um, because the balance of positions was right. You know, we're really, really post-heavy. You know, so Mm -hmm. Brianna Stewart and Asia Wilson are probably the two best players in the world right now. And so putting them in a position where they could be starters and play a bulk of the minutes was, you know, kind of a priority for the for the selection committee. Uh, We also had, you know, a lot a big gap in in the guard play, you know, and that's where the new players came in because we lost. Lindsay um, Whalen and Simone Augustus and Maya Moore and Angel McCautry, we had to fill those slots with first-time Olympians. And so, you know, they got, they got their experience, but it wasn't quite the same as 2016 when we, we had 10 players that could come into the game and, and really be equalizers. And so it was a different experience, but this group really came together. We don't have a lot of time to prepare. People don't realize how hard it is because of the limited preparation time but I feel like Dawn did a great job as our head coach and the players really bought into what they needed to do to be successful. And so obviously it resulted in, you know, a big win in Tokyo, but it was, it was a lot of hard work behind the scenes. 
Uh, so what you're telling me is it's called sustainable success. You're not just looking yeah. at this Olympics. You're looking at making yeah. sure that there is a successful transition as you go on to continue to be able to win because, A, you need the experience, and, B, you realize that the rest of the world is catching up. That's how, that's how big basketball is. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that the women's national team has won seven consecutive gold medals. So I know there's different people on the selection committee, but – uh, every every quad, but there's a there's a reason they pick the team that they do, they do, and you know you can't argue when we've continued to win gold medals. And yes, could we go there with twelve different players or maybe six different players and still win? Probably because that's how lucky we are to have a, a talent pool that's so deep. Uh, but this isn't about necessarily who, who we like the most. This is about who we need on our team position wise to be successful and. Um, I, I thought I thought it was a great experience. It was a really hard Olympics. Um, you know, to be honest with you, the, the COVID parameters sure. and um, restrictions in Tokyo made it really difficult. Nobody could have guests or family um, there. We couldn't travel outside of our practice site and our per, uh, uh, game site. We couldn't go anywhere. So we didn't get to experience the Olympics on a level that normally we do. And so we had to have a group that was resilient. And, and ready for that kind of, you know, mental, almost mental anguish more than physical. And just the fact that it was supposed to be 2020 and it gets moved is just a whole other thing. Exactly, exactly. So you have to, you have to, you know, to to hold into account like how people are playing this year versus last year. You know, you have to look at injuries and who's healthy and who's going to be ready to play in the Olympics. Uh, and again, you got to look at experience. And so there might, maybe there would have been a different team. Uh, last year if we had went in 2020 but i think for 2021 this is the, the right the right mix of players listen you won the gold so it worked <laughs> yes of course <laughs> that's the bottom line <laughs> can't, ar- can't argue right <laughs> can't argue with success so how do you go now and take me through being named president of the uh, connecticut sun and and how much fun is that and how much fun are you looking forward to in enjoying this new challenge yeah um well it's been it's been a blast so far i actually kind of Took, took the title and started in April, and I've been in and out, obviously, with my USA basketball commitments, but I've been able to, to work remotely, and I have a great staff at home kind of holding down the fort and doing the day-to-day. But it starts with the, you know, Mohegan Sun and the Mohegan Tribe being supportive of, you know, trying a new structure, and that's hiring a president, which they'd never had before. Uh, and, they wa- you know, they wanted somebody that was outward-facing, that would be somebody who could go out in the public and, you know, promote the team, create partnerships, um, and really kind of drive attention um, and attendance to our games. And so I'm really excited to kind of hit the ground running here and be there full time. Um, The team is obviously super successful. We're currently sitting at third place in the WNBA, and we've got the front runner for MVP and John Quell Jones, and I think one of the best coaches in the league and Kurt Miller. So, you know, we're really kind of hit our stride this year and I want to make sure that these women get the attention that they deserve. I want to make sure that there's fans in the seats. I want to make sure we're creating, you know, partnerships that make sense um, for our players. Um, You know, we're not, we're in an era now where, you know, we don't want, you know, somebody who's just going to put a sign up in our arena arena. We want somebody who's going to believe in, in the social justice issues that we believe in as an organization and partner with us to, to promote our players and amplify their voices. So although I'm putting my coaching, you know, aside at the moment, um, the fact that I can continue to use my platform as a leader in the game of women's basketball, um, that I, I, you know, all the 20 plus years that I've worked in this game to network and create, um, 
you know, my own platform, you know, none of that goes away. Um, I can just do it at a whole high, a higher level. And so I'm excited about the commitment uh, from the overall organization. I'm excited about the momentum that the league has and what the front office is doing. And I'm very excited about getting our team into the playoffs here and having a chance to help them win a WNBA championship. No question about that. We'll talk a little bit more about the team in a second, but I want to make sure that we talk about Change Can't Wait Night, which takes place yep. on August 28th uh, against the Sparks at Mohegan Sun Arena. And the one thing that's been very evident about the, the players in the WNBA, Jennifer, is that when it comes to social issues, they have been in the forefront in a lot of cases, Absolutely. more so than uh, their male counterparts. And so Change Can't Wait is just another example of that. Absolutely. Well, I think it start, you know, it stems from the fact that these women are supported by their own individual teams and they're supported by the front office. And that's what makes them ha- feel like they have the ability and the confidence to speak out. And I think, you know, the important thing for people to understand is that we don't want to just be about words and T-shirts and slogans, right? We want to be about action. And so our, our goal is to create the positive change for, for all marginalized groups. But, we, you know, we obviously have a focus on the black and brown communities within Connecticut and New England. And so, you know, having the Change Can't Wait game on August 28th, you know, it, it allows us to really amplify our message. You know, our pillars are police reform, health equity, voting rights, community advocacy. Um, but we also have partners in our community. And so we're able to create a T-shirt and, um, you know, on the back of our T-shirt, we're going to have our partners. And it's Black Lives Matter New Haven. It's the NAACP of Norwich and the Youth Council. It's Boys and Girls Club of Hartford, Hearing Youth Voice, and Writer's Block. And, and they're going to be prominently displayed on the back of our shirts. And we do have other organizations that we've partnered with, but it's important for us um, to, to make sure our fans and the people that support our team understand that these women are more than just basketball players and that they want to, you know, impact the community. They want to, you know, ha- make sure that people have access to information about political candidates or quality health care. They want to create a safe space for people to be their authentic selves. You know, they want to ensure that we have an equitable society where people are treated fairly. So this isn't just about us putting on a t-shirt. This is about us being able to spread our message, live our lives, and partner with uh, organizations in our community that really believe uh, in the same things that we do. And another example of that, Jennifer, is the Swarm Basketball Partnership, right? Absolutely. And, you know, we have we, we want to go beyond the basketball court and we want to be role models to young children. We want, you know, black and brown children to look at our players and see people who look like them and understand what the possibilities are for their lives, you know? And so we're really excited about our partnership with Swarm. You know, it's one of the nation's largest grassroots youth basketball organizations. Um, and it's, and we're optimistic that hopefully it's just one of many partnerships in our community. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll have the opportunity for, uh, for the Swarm to host clinics and um, have a presence on our concourse at the games and work with myself and Morgan Tuck, who's a former UConn and, and Connecticut Sun player. Um, but most importantly, it really does help connect us to a youth audience. And we want to turn those, those young girls and boys into lifelong Connecticut Sun fans. So it's a win-win for us, um, and we're really excited about showcasing like I said, all the different partners that have reached out to, to want to be a part of the Connecticut Sun this year and and we're just really looking forward to this month of August and September when we've got seven home games mm. and we're able now to, to invite people back into the arena at full capacity. Uh, we want to make sure we, we, we 
continue to have the best home court advantage of anybody in the WNBA because our team has had the best home record, I think, for the last two seasons that we've played in Mohegan Sun Arena. So we want to make sure that that streak continues. What were the challenges, uh, Jennifer, for the for for the WNBA as a whole with the COVID nineteen and just trying to yeah. stay in contact with your fans? You know, because we have that yeah. the, the WNBA, you know, has a, a really grassroots kind of hands on relationship with their fans. So, what was that like not be having them in the stands? It, it was it was definitely difficult. You know, one you remember last season we were completely out of Connecticut and the team was playing down in a bubble in Florida, so. Our fans could only watch um, on TV, which we had, you know, lots of exposure, which was great for our team. And we had an increase in um, exposure for the WNBA last summer. Um, you know, this year we had uh, our priorities were safety. Player safety was first, right? So mm-hmm. we could have people in the arena, but we didn't want anyone within 30 feet of the court. You know, we didn't want anyone that was you know, able to come into contact with any of our player or coaches. Um, so it made it difficult. It made the, the arena felt empty. You know, even if we had 2,200 people in the stands, um, it didn't feel the same. It didn't have the same energy. You know, fans had to wear masks for most of the months of May and June. Um, we didn't really have the, the beverages and food service that we typically have. We didn't have a concession, you know, stand or, uh, you know, merchandise stand set up. So it was very, you know, empty feeling. And so, with this Olympic break and being able to communicate that we're able to open the arena back up, we're really excited about having courtside seats filled mm. and the arena filled and the energy in the gym and making sure that after this long wait of a year and a half that our Connecticut Sun fans really get to experience all that is great about the WNBA. Jennifer, is it fascinating to see, and you're a perfect person to ask about this, how the role of the athlete that you almost have more power and more control over your image and what the things you can speak out and to kind of filter out the the in-between person with your messages, how the way social media has, you know, has progressed. And with that, you know, you really have to be careful what you say and how you say it, maybe even more so than ever before. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, I think there's a a positive and a negative to that, you know, obviously Mm. our, Our players and our coaches are very outspoken, but I think that they're also very thoughtful about how they want to present themselves. And so, you know, maybe in the past when I played, it had to be something where, you know, we had to go through our SID to do a story and then it's a phone interview or an in-person interview. Uh, Now it's you can put whatever messaging that you want on social media and you can have an immediate audience. Um, And so, you know, there is some education for players coming out of college to understand their what their brand means, um, what their future means. Um, but it also is, is uh, like you mentioned earlier, allows us to connect to our fans a lot more closely because they're really getting a chance to see who these women are, who their authentic selves are. Um, and, 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 and there's a, a bond and a feeling of support that I think is different than maybe men's professional sports. And so I love that it's easily that these messages and, and the brand of these women are easily accessible. Um, but certainly there has to be education around making sure you're putting out there what you want people to see and making sure that your messaging is, is true and, and true to yourself, but also, you know, you want to, you want to be careful about what you're saying. And I think, um, there's a lot less women that are worried necessarily about people disagreeing with them. You know, the philosophy of, Hey, if you want to be a fan of us, 
then this this is who I am. Um, I'm not going to, you know, watch my words so that you can be happy coming to see me play basketball. We want we want fans that are going to support these women as a whole. And if that means that they want to kneel for the national anthem, if that means that they want, in some, some cases, some teams aren't out there for the national anthem, if it means that they want to wear something on their shirt, um, if they want to say something after the game in, in the, in the, you know, to the media, um, they're looking for fans that support all of them and who they are as people. Jennifer, you've done a lot in your career, and now you're president of the Connecticut Sun. What, what, what's your goal for in this role? <laughs> what, what do you want to do here? What, what are you trying to do? I know you're trying to win yeah. a championship. I got that. But what, do you, what else Absolutely. are you trying to do? <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm competitive, so I want to mm-hmm. win, right? So what does winning look like when you're in the front office? Well, one, it's, it's getting the support for your basketball team to help them, you know, be able to, um, you know, compete on the basketball floor at the highest level, right? And then it means that you, in the business side, you are partnering with, you know, corporations that, you know, believe in the same things that you do. It's about filling the stands and leading the league in attendance. It's about generating sponsorship revenue at a higher level than we ever have before. It's about creating this change can't wait platform to be impactful. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's about hosting youth clinics and youth camps and connecting to the youth in new England. It's every aspect that we can improve on. I want to improve on. And, and I walked into a great situation with a great foundation from the prior staff, but I want to be even better. And I want, you know, you want to make money. You want to, to be an asset to the Mohegan sun as a professional franchise um, but you want to make sure the experience of everybody who works for you, and that goes from, you know, the best player on the team to, you know, the, the new account executive in the front office that's trying to sell tickets. You want everybody to feel valued and that they're a part of something really special. And so, yeah, I'm going to work really hard to create the best franchise in the WNBA. Well, here's what I know, Jennifer. One thing before we wrap up is that uh, because of your experience and you're, you've been a part of winning and know what winning feels like and tastes like, so when I ask you about this team, does this team have what it takes? You know, everybody knows you have that certain feeling about the team. Yep. Is this the team that can really give you another championship in Connecticut? I, I believe so. I mean, you know, when I think about our season so far, you know, we, t- we took Seattle to overtime in Seattle a couple months ago. Um, we've beaten, and they're in first place in the league. We've beaten Las Vegas twice in their second place in the league. So we're obviously capable of beating and competing with the best teams in the league. Um, like I had mentioned earlier, we have the front runner for MVP and John Quell Jones, but we also have all-stars, Dewana Bonner and Brianna Jones, who have had really special things. And we've got really experienced, tough-nosed guard play. And you mentioned, like, you know, it's about the guards, right? And so <laughs> our guards set the tone. They, they don't get the attention. They're not the all-stars on the team, but they can defend anybody in the league. Um, you know, they can, they're capable of making shots and running our team and getting the ball where it needs to go. Uh, I, our, our bench probably isn't as deep as Kurt Miller would like, um, because, you know, with the salary cap, we, we, we have a young bench, mm-hmm. but we've had great contributions from, from some of our first and second year guys. So if everybody can stay healthy and continue to, you know, work hard together to create the chemistry that we had in the first half of the season, I absolutely think that we can win a WNBA championship this year. Well, here, look, you know, it's not when it, it's when they perform, not 
all the time how they perform. Yep. So if they can give you key minutes and key spots, that's all you're asking for. And they have Absolutely. enough experience on the floor that the moment won't be too big for them. Sometimes they'll surprise you, Jennifer. You know, in the yes. big moment, they give you some baskets and some rebounds. You're like, wow, we weren't expecting that. But boy, we're sure glad we exactly. got it. <laughs> exactly. Jennifer Rosati, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Continued success. Just for my audience, once again, tell us more about, uh, just remind us how we can get more information about Chains Can't Wait. Can we get tickets? Can we go online? Talk to us. Absolutely. I mean, uh, everything is available on the you know Connecticut Sun website. Um, you'll be able to purchase tickets there. Um, you'll be able to look at our Change Can't Wait um, information and platforms and uh, partners that we've um, you know, continue to work with. We also highlight Black-owned businesses every month. Um, so every, everything's at ConnecticutSun.com. Um, so come visit us. Come to the Mohegan Sun and get a night out on the town. You know, for sure, we, you know, you could catch a, a nice dinner, catch a game, maybe gamble a little bit. You know, parking is free. You could buy T-shirts. I mean, it's a great, it actually is a great family atmosphere. Um, we're getting our dance team back together for the second half of the season. We'll have some halftime entertainment and some pregame entertainment. So we're really excited that we're getting, we're getting the ball back rolling and, and having all of the, the, you know, the, what, all the things that make a WNBA game exciting, you know, it's going to be back in the arena this August and September. So come out and see us for sure. Jonathan Rosani, you have been a success at every level. I have no doubt you will have continued success as the president of the Connecticut Sun. Thanks for a couple of minutes this morning, and we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks so much. That wraps up this edition of New York Sports and Beyond. We thank you for listening. We'll join you this evening during the week on ESPN New York Tonight with Gordon Damer and right back here next Sunday morning on New York Sports and Beyond. For my all-world producer, Mr. Ray Santiago, and this morning, the legendary R.J. Santillo, I'm Larry Hardesty. The conversation continues next on 98.7 ESPN New York.